How are you all? I want to thank you for last week. Those that were here Friday, Good Friday, and those that were here Saturday and Sunday, and those of you that were, felt comfortable enough and trusted us to bring your friends and, 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 and loved ones to come to church. And I pray that uh, God really used the, that place in Scripture to touch everyone's heart. I'm just so thankful for you. It's, it's hard to put into words how much I love you people and how much I love the privilege of being here. And we're studying through these books, and we've come now in the, in the book of Revelation. Those of you that are with us, you know we're looking at the book of Revelation, and we are in the third chapter, and we are now looking at the sixth church. Now, what is so special about this church is I think, uh, I, I'm, I'm, let me just say I agree with uh, uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. And he believes that this church, the church at Philadelphia, is the church that has extended on into our time right now. I would like to say to you that I wish and I pray and I hope with all of my heart that we are like this church, the church of Philadelphia. The one thing I believe that we have in common with them and that it is our unfailing, hopefully our unfailing desire, is that we would be faithful to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and to teach the Word of God. That is what made this particular church, the church at Philadelphia, so special. They were faithful against the onslaught of this world's, the world's ideals at that time. Philadelphia was located about 25 miles southeast of Sardis, and it was on a a trade route that went through to Rome. And, and so they, they had all kinds of people come through their, their little city. It wasn't a huge place, but it was a thriving place. And what they had was that they had a, a faithfulness that even though they, the onslaught of, different, uh, I, I, onslaught of different ideals, they did not change their hearts towards the love of Jesus Christ. Well, most cities in that day, as we've been studying, fell prey to the world's system and the world's ways. Philadelphia remained faithful. And what they remained faithful to, our Lord proclaims. Look with me, please, at verse 8. We'll read it all in a moment. But look, the Lord says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. Because you have a little power, and here's what I believe, I believe we are like this church. He says, you have not, you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Therefore, the message that goes out to this church, the church of Philadelphia, deals with God's promises and his blessings upon a time that was going to come upon the earth. Now obviously it didn't come upon the time of this church, the church at Philadelphia that we see here in the third chapter, but it's going to come upon a church like Philadelphia. And, and look what he says in verse 10. Now let me say to you up front, this, this place in Scripture must be divided into two parts because there's no way that we can teach the first part of it and also do justice 
what is mentioned in verse 10, 11, and 12. We must break it in two. But look what he says in verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. In other words, you have steadfastly, patiently kept my word. I also, he says, will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. It's talking about the tribulation, folks. We are now going to get into the whole process of what is it like just before the Lord comes, and what is that hour like? And he says, which is about to come to the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, I don't mean to do this to you, but I, I want to talk about this next week because it's so... It, it, first, we've got to understand why and what made them faithful so that we can understand why we ought to be faithful and what the blessings are for us if this is the time of our Lord's returning. How can we also be kept from that hour of testing? And so next week we're going to talk about mid, you know, the uh, uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Those are three ideas about when the rapture will come. Now I firmly believe the rapture is before the tribulation. And I firmly believe that because I don't want to go through the tribulation. <laughs> if we start in the tribulation, then I'm going to rest strongly on mid-trib. And if we pass the midway mark, I'm going straight to post to trip. <laughs> no. I believe, I really do believe that you were going to make a, a strong case towards that the church will not go through the tribulation. But we will leave that to your judgment. We will teach it as we try to teach everything that is uh, out there uh, and give you a point of view so that you might make your own mind up. But what is so wonderful about this church is the promises and the blessings that the Lord gives to those of us, those who remain faithful. And I do honestly believe we are trying to be that church. Whether we've succeeded or not, that's, that's up to the Lord. But we've tried. We have tried. Let's read verses 7 through 13 of this particular place in, in the book of Revelation, the third chapter, the message to the church at Philadelphia. It says in verse 7, To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy and who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and you have kept my word and you have not denied my name, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take your crown. The one who overcomes, I will make them a pillar 
in the temple of my God, and they will not go out from it any more. I will write upon them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We need to listen closely, of course, to all of the churches that we've been looking at. The previous five, the the church at Ephesus, the church at at Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and also the church at Sardis, and now this church, the church at Philadelphia, which I think falls closest to us uh, than all of them. We need to listen closely. Listen to what the Lord says to you. Let's pray. Father, please, um, would you do me the greatest honor, and that would you move me aside so that I would not hinder anything that you want to say to any of us, myself included. Allow me, Father, to, to just remove myself the best I can, know the best you can from, from hindering from this message. Open up our eyes, dear Lord. Open up our hearts, our minds, and our thoughts so that we might behold wonderful things from your law, the wonderful Bibles, that we hold in our laps. And Father, we want to give you thanks for your kindness. May we, like the church of Philadelphia, may we be found faithful against the onslaught of this world and its ideals. And may we steadfastly hold to your name and your word. I pray, Father, For this, in Jesus' most precious name, amen. Let me tell you, let's let's look how he starts this particular place in Scripture. Normally, for the other five churches, he kind of, John kind of, and the Lord introduced himself like he introduced himself to John in in chapter 1. Let's turn back there just for a second. Let's refresh our memory. John was on the Isle of Patmos. John heard a voice. John turned around and he saw the glorified risen Savior in all of his glory. And what John does is he falls at his feet like a dead person. Now John had walked with the Lord. He had known him. He he was there by his bosom at the Last Supper. John was a was was a, very much in love with Jesus Christ. And yet, when John saw him for fully for who he was, well, let's read and see what John says. In John, in Revelation, the, the first chapter, starting with the 12th verse, says, John said, I turned to see a voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now we learn from chapter 1 verse 20 that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So the Lord is in the midst of these churches. Look what it says verse 13. In the middle of these lampstands of the churches was one like the Son of Man. Now he tells us what he was dressed like and what he looked like. He said he was clothed in a robe that reached to his feet and he was girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Now he's, he's reaching to try to explain him. He said his head and his hair, they were white like wool. No, no, like snow, he is saying. He's trying to, to express who he is. 
His eyes, well, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet, they were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice, oh, his voice was like the sound of many waters. And then in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now we learn from verse 20, those are the angels of the seven churches. And out of his mouth, John says in verse 16, came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, that was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, as I just explained to you a little while ago, John said, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And yet it says, the Lord then laid his right hand upon me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. That's the essence of Easter, what we, what we, we celebrated last week. I was dead, Good Friday, and behold, I am alive forevermore, Easter, Easter Sunday. And so that's the way the Lord normally introduced himself to the first five churches, but not here. With this church, Jesus introduces himself to the church of Philadelphia as holy and true and the one who has all the authority. In other words, he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and nobody can shut, and who will shut and nobody can open. Let's take a look first at his holiness. It says, he who is holy. That refers to to God Almighty, who alone possesses absolute holiness. The Old Testament spoke about the holy God as well as the new. In Isaiah, if you'll look up on the, on the board, in Isaiah chapter 6, in Revelation chapter 4, and then in Mark chapter 1, John chapter 6, and 1 Peter chapter 1, it speaks about the holiness of God. Old Testament as well as new. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Isaiah says this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, Isaiah says, is full of His glory. Much the same is noted in the book of Revelation, the fourth chapter, the eighth verse, where it says, Four living creatures shouted with one voice in saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. To say that God is holy in your life and in my life, that is to say He is utterly separated from sin. His character is unblemished. It's flawless. We've learned that from Scripture. We learned that when Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for the sins of this world, He was sinless. There was no sin. He took our sin, your sin, yours, 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 my sin. He took our sin upon Himself. They nailed Him to the cross and He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sin. But He was blameless. He was unblemished, flawless in His holiness. I love this next reference in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. 
Jesus Christ is walking and this demon sees him coming towards him. And the demon, it says in Mark chapter 1 verse 24, became terrified. It says a terrified demon screamed at Jesus as he was walking to him saying, What business do we have to do with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? And then he asks him this question, Have you come to destroy us? Oh, they knew. They knew that their time was short. Have you come to destroy us? And then he says, I know who you are. You are, he says, the Holy One of God. You know, James chapter 2 verse 19 says, the, the demons themselves believe and they shudder. Well, John chapter 6 verse 69 only reassures the statement of the holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But this time, John brings it into our court, believer's court. He says, Peter does, Peter says this in the book of John, Peter affirming the acclamation that Jesus Christ is holy, he says, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I wrote a note to myself and to you to just contemplate. Have, have you come to know this one who is the Holy One of God? I mean, have you come to understand who He is in your heart? Do you, do you, do you, do you sense the importance of that decision that you've made? And do you, like the church at Philadelphia, do we remain faithful in our walk with Him? Well, if the answer is yes to that, then, then Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, then, then you must be holy as well. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.15, Like the Holy One who has called you, called us into this salvation, he says, be holy yourself in all your behavior. That's the way we ought to live. Now, when we mess up, God has given us this wonderful escape. And He has given us as believers, 1 John 1.9, if, if when we do sin, if we confess our sins, He's faithful, He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So not only is Jesus Christ the Holy One of God, but he also describes himself as true. Truth is combined with holiness often in Scripture. Not only here in chapter 3 and verse 7, but also in the book of Revelation, the 6th chapter, the 10th verse. It is at that time where people who died on earth during the tribulation, we'll talk about that when we get to the 6th chapter, but these people cry out, with a loud voice saying to the Lord, How long, O Lord, holy and true? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? This exclamation of holiness and truth is, is stated throughout Scripture. The word true is in the Greek, A-L-E-T-H-I-N-O-S. It simply denotes that which is genuine or authentic or real. 
you see, in the midst of this world in which you and I live, this, this world that is full of falsehood, full of perversion, full of error, Jesus Christ comes and is the embodiment of truth. And that truth is what you and I hold on to as well as His holiness. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am, He says, the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through me. You and I, because of His holiness, because of His truthfulness, we can cling to that passage and know that nobody can come to God the Father apart from salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. Because He is the way and the truth and the life. So He's holy. So He is true. But also... Jesus describes himself here in verse 7 to the church at Philadelphia as the one who holds the key of David. That key represents his authority, control, if you would, of this earth and in everything else there is. Remember we just read in chapter 1 when, when he explained himself to John, when John was laying at his feet as a dead man. Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 17, Don't be afraid, because, he says, I am the first and I am the last. And then he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, And I am also the living one who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. As the holder of the key of David, Scripture is telling us that Jesus Christ alone has the sovereign authority to determine who will enter into the door of His kingdom, heaven. When He opens it, it'll be open and no one can shut it. And when He shuts it, it'll be shut and nobody can open it. As Revelation 1.18 declares, Jesus has the key to death and to Hades, hell. Well, here in chapter 3 and verse 7, he also has the key to salvation and blessings. He is the one, as he exclaims, who opens and no one will be able to shut, and who shuts and nobody will be able to open that description stresses our Lord's power, His omnipotence. In other words, what Jesus does cannot be overturned. He's holy. He's true. He has full and all authority. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 13 says this about God. I act, he says, and who can reverse it? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. When he acts, nobody can reverse it. And so no one can shut the doors to his kingdom nor to his blessings if he holds them open. And nobody can force them open if he holds it shut. So in light of that promise of who he is, he says in verse 8, I know your deeds. In other words, 
as, as we've seen throughout every church, He knows. He knows what's going on. He knows our deeds. In other words, He knows the opportunities that we have been given to bring people into His forever kingdom through this open door that He has given us. That's why we, we, we believe it is God's will that we have a mission team go to the Dominican. We believe that God has opened that door of opportunity to us, and we feel it is imperative that we walk through it, the door that He has given to us to go and to share the gospel, the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. You'll see why that's so important in a a moment in this particular place in Scripture. But then He tells us, if you read on in verse 8, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. That that more than likely is a call to evangelism. He opens the door. If it's not evangelism, then then perhaps it's at least service that, that He has called us into ministry of some kind. But then He says, look, because you have a, a little power. That's not a negative comment, by the way. Most think that it is. You just have a little bit of power. It's not a negative comment about our lack of power, but rather it's a praise of our strength found in and through our faithfulness to Jesus Christ, as well as our faithfulness to His name. Paul says it best, as he normally does. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.10, he says, I am well content with my, do you know, weakness. I'm well content, he says, with my weakness. He says, I'm content with insults. I'm content with distress, persecution, difficulties, for Christ's sake. In other words, not because I've done wrong. He says, I am content with this weakness for the sake of Christ. Because when he says, I am weak, then I am what? Strong. There's the strength. There's the little power that you and I have as believers in Jesus Christ. If we keep his word and do not deny his name, we have a part of God's power that power you and I can stand upon. And so we would have an open door that no one could shut. Because we have a little power, because we have kept His Word, and we have kept His holy and righteous name. Christian, aside from this little power that it says we have in verse 8, keeping His Word, holding on to His name, Apart from that, we have nothing. Absolutely nothing. This world is utterly powerless. And so are we without the power that we receive from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him, in Jesus Christ, all things are held together. Now this is my belief. This, this, isn't, this isn't necessarily out of a commentary. This is just something I believe. But I believe that the Lord God has given us just a portion of His power. Because if we had it all, I think it would overwhelm us, and more than likely, 
we would misuse it. So he has given us this little power and he has opened doors that no one can shut and he has shut doors that nobody can open so that we understand where he wants us to go. That's why it's so imperative to pray and find out, has God opened the door for you to do whatever it is that he is asking you to do? Which brings us to verses 9 and 10. Jesus says in verse 9 and verse 10, because of their faithfulness, Philadelphia, hopefully ours, upon his word and his name, he says, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and they are not, they lie. He says, I will make them come and I will make them bow down at your feet and I will make them know that I have loved you. Because... Here's why. You've kept the word of my perseverance. In other words, steadfastly, faithfully, you have kept my word. Therefore, he says in verse 10, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. It's interesting. He calls our enemies his, and he will show them how much he loves us. Those who are, he says, the synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews, and they're not. They lie. You see, a true Jew, a true Jew is one who holds to the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they know the promises that God made to them. God promised Israel that there would come a Redeemer, a Messiah. And a true Jew knows that when their Messiah comes, he will come for both Jew and the Gentile alike. Now how do they know that? Well, they ought to know that from the book of Genesis. The 12th chapter, verses 1, 2, and 3, God comes to Abraham, before he was Abraham, Abram, he comes to him and says, I am going to bless all the nations in your name, Abram. I will bless all the nations and they shall be blessed in you. Now Paul confirms that Old Testament promise that all the Jews knew of. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Galatians, the third chapter, verses 6 through 9. Listen, it says, Even so, Paul writes, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham had faith in God. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. In the Old Testament, before the cross, the Jews looked forward to a coming Redeemer, to a coming Messiah. And they trusted that God would bring them a Messiah. And so, in their trust and belief that the Messiah would come, God took their faith in the coming Messiah and he reckoned their belief in that as righteousness. Today, you and me, we look back at the cross 
And when we look at the cross, we see that Jesus Christ died on that cross, shed his blood, he said, for the forgiveness of our sin. Then he rose from the dead to prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is exactly who he says he is. We look back at the cross and we believe in Jesus Christ, and that is reckoned to us as righteousness. And so both Jew and Gentile, Old Testament and New Testament believers come together, and we believe and are reckoned as righteous. Listen now what Paul says concerning that in Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9. Even so Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, Paul writes, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, those who are true believers are those who are sons and daughters of faith. Faith in God's promise for a Redeemer, a Messiah. It says in verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. How do we know that? Because he told Abram, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, all the nations will be blessed in you. Abram, you're not to go out and just keep it for the Jews alone. You're to pass out my blessings upon all people everywhere. And so verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations are going to be blessed in you. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith, they are the ones that are blessed with Abraham the believer. Jew and Gentile knew that. Jews knew that. So a true Jew would be a Jew that would hold on to that teaching, the teaching that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now where the Jews made the mistake was they, they kept it to themselves. We can't make that mistake. We have an open door to go to, to the Dominican. We have an open door to preach the gospel to some people that, that haven't heard maybe. God has given us this open door to reach out to those, all people of all nationalities everywhere. Now those who have rejected Jesus Christ, the Messiah, both Jew and Gentile alike, then they are those who reject Jesus Christ and have become tools in the hands of Satan. Listen. If you are waiting, let's say you came here last week and, and you, you, you heard about the Savior and you want to know whether you should accept Him or not. While you wait to make a decision on whether you're going to ask Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins or not, you need to know that there is no middle ground. There is no place of waiting that you can wait and be safe. While you gain more information concerning God's only provision for your sin, then you either believe or not believe. There's no middle ground while you wait. That's why the Bible says clearly today, now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Because nobody can promise you tomorrow. Not even this afternoon. And that's why Jesus calls all who do not believe a synagogue of Satan. Because through their unbelief, 
A person only can become a useful tool for Satan. That's it. So according to verse 9, Jesus says, One day all unbelievers are going to come and bow down at the feet of those who believe and trust in Him and know that He has loved us. You see, it always comes to this. It always. Jesus loves those who are faithful to Him. And we know the truth. Jesus loves us. This we know. Because the Bible has told us so. We know that. And so the Old Testament states over and over again, the enemies of Israel will come and bow down before them because they come to recognize and realize that God loved Israel just as He loves us today. Now there are a number of places. One place in I think it's in Isaiah, the 49th chapter, it says the enemies of Israel, they come and they actually lick the, the dust off the feet of the Jews. I'm not going to read you that. It's not, let me read you this one, though. Let me read you Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14. It says, Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt, the merchants of Cush, and, and the Sabaeans, the men of stature, they will come to you and they will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come in chains and they will bow down before you. And they will make supplication to you because they will know surely God is with you and there is none other. There is no other God. They'll bow down before us. They'll know that God loves us. Now, I, I, don't, I don't care one iota about that. I don't. I, I don't particularly care. Someone comes down and says, Boy, I know God loves you and bows down. That's, that's not the issue. To me, the issue is what we've been studying so far. It all begins with yours and my loving God faithfully first. Just as he said to the church at Ephesus, This I have against you, he said. You have, you have left what? Your first love. You see, more than anything else, for you and for me, I want us to faithfully love the Lord our God, to love His Word, and to love His holy and righteous name, so that we can be and will be kept from that hour of testing, if it should come in our lifetime. And we'll study about that next week. But first and foremost, it all begins with your love for God first and by your being faithful to Him, His name, and His Word. Now we've, we've pretty much committed ourselves, not nah, pretty much, we have with all of our hearts committed ourselves to that. We don't have lots of rules and regulations here at this church. We have just a strong love of the name of Jesus Christ and we believe it is exalted above every name, every place, anywhere. And we also love His Word because we believe His Word is the only thing that will make you and me grow in our faith and love for Him. And So what I ask of you is the same thing I would ask of myself is that we would be faithful. Faithful to His name faithful to His Word. Next week we'll talk of the hour of testing in verses 10 through 13. You just, will not, you just won't want to miss it. It's a testing that will come upon everyone except believers will not go through that hour of testing. That's why I believe very strongly 
that uh, we will be raptured before the tribulation begins. As God will keep us, it says, from that hour of testing. We will try with all of our hearts to study about that next week. Sufficient for this week that we remain faithful. We be like that church of Philadelphia. That we hold ourselves faithful to His name. Faithful to His word. I make you that vow. I will try and do that with all my heart because I love you more than I can put to words. Father in heaven, what a privilege. You've given us choices to make. We can be faithful. We can. And when we fall short, you've given us 1 John 1, 9. We can confess whatever sin it is that we've done and know that you would be faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because you are faithful and you are just. And so because you are faithful, you are holy, you are true, we are told in scriptures that we are to be holy. We are to be faithful and true. And so, Father, will you bless us this week? Bless us this day. Take us wherever you would, Father. May we enjoy the, the joy of this life and may we enjoy the family and the friends that we will be with. And thank you for the new birth of Luke and, and other children that I just saw here this morning that are, uh, are just newborn. Bless them, Father. Bless the families. And now would you bless us, Father, as we go from here. And thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' precious, precious name, amen. I love you all so much. Thanks for being here, and thanks again for last Easter. It was a great time.